If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter 35. Now, if you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. It can take a long time to get familiar with the Bible, so familiar that you can just like find books in it because the Bible is so complicated. Um, it, it's, it's huge. I mean, and, and notice where our passage comes in. It comes in basically, if you look up at my Bible, kind of in the middle of this book. Now, the reason that's important to know is because when it comes to the Bible, in all of its kind of complicated nature, at the end of the day, the Bible tells a story. That's the simplest, truest thing about the Bible. The Bible is a story. It tells the one true story of this world. Amidst all of its kind of complexity and diversity, the thing that holds all of the books of the Bible together and all of the different things going on in the Bible, the kind of spine that runs through it that, that gives it structure is the plot line. There's a single plot line. The Bible tells the story of this world, the true story of the world, of life, of reality. Now, like I said, it's not simple. And if you've ever tried to read the Bible, you know that. You know that this is not a simple book. And seeing it as a whole, seeing it kind of from a bird's eye view, seeing this story the Bible tells can be hard for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's very long. <laughs> and so it's not like you can just sit down and like read through it real quick. I'm a kind of a little bit faster than average reader. And often on my off days, I can read a whole like novel in, in one day. Um, like, like, you know, little novels like uh, Louise Penny or something great like that. But the Bible is long, and so that makes it hard to not get lost in the weeds. In, in, in addition to that, um, the Bible has lots of digressions, right? It's filled with all of these beautiful, like, books of just poetry or, or books of just sermons by preachers. Um, and then it'll skip over huge stretches of history. But... If you would sit down and read the Bible in one sitting, if you could do that, you would, you, you, you could possibly notice the way it starts and ends is the same. The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible both center around a city garden on a mountain. The first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. If, if you were reading it um, as an ancient Middle Eastern person, you would recognize that this famous story that we call the Garden of Eden, that it's actually a palace garden. It tells it in a way that, that signaled to ancient Near Eastern people, that's a city garden. It's not Yellowstone. It's not Denali. It's a remarkably cultivated city garden. 
And the Bible ends, and Ezekiel says it's a city garden on a mountain. And the Bible ends with a mountain and a city with a garden. See, if you could read it in one stretch, you would feel that this thing holds together, that, it, that it's one thing. It's not just a bunch of little bitty pieces. And so when we turn in the middle of this story to Isaiah chapter 35, about midway through the Bible, we're right in the middle of this story of the world. And in Isaiah chapter 35, like in Genesis 1 and 2, like in Revelation 21 and 22, we see people, we see nature, and we see culture. That's what a city garden is, right? It's both people and nature, and it also is culture. And so when we get to Isaiah chapter 35, we're in the middle of this story of the world, the story that God created the world. And when it says that God created the world, it's not just the physical world, but it's also the people in the world, and it's also the culture that they produce. And this story that starts in Genesis with a world, with people, with culture, with nature, and all of them are good. Everything's good. Everything's copacetic. There's this like beautiful shalom and flourishing. By the time you get to Isaiah 35, you would not say that about it, right? There is brokenness. There are thorns. There are wars. There is hurt. There's an environmental crisis. There are political crises. There's abuse. There's sleepless nights. There are school systems groaning under the weight of competing and impossible responsibilities. There's broken marriage vows. That's what's going on in the middle of the story. But the story starts all good, and it ends all good. And what you find in Isaiah 35 is the promise that the end is going to come that it is going to be good again, that it is going to be healed, that people are going to be restored, that nature is going to be saved from its environmental crisis, that culture is going to be brought into its best place, that God is going to sort it out. He is promising in Isaiah 35, he is promising that he will heal, that he will restore nature, peach people, and culture. So notice Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So it, it starts out with this triad of death, right? Wilderness, dry land, and desert. And that's replaced by this triad of fertility. Lebanon, Carmel, Sharon. God is going to turn the desert into a garden. He's promising it. The land itself is going to do what our first song said. All creation is going to sing. Creation is languishing in despair. But the power of God will restore nature. When the rains of God fall the barren waste will spring into life. Not just nature. Look at verses five and six. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. 
The lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. People, just like deserts, are going to be restored. Now, at the time this was written, Israel had been conquered. There were lame people from war. There were people whose eyes were no longer working because of blows they had sustained in mortal hand-to-hand combat. There were deaf people who had been beaten and bludgeoned until they couldn't hear. And these people are being promised, just like nature has been destroyed and your body's been destroyed, I'm going to restore this stuff. I'm going to heal nature and people. The physically disabled, those immobilized by despair, I'm going to fix this. Look at verse 7. The burning desert shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water, right? There's parts of nature that just soak up the water and then you can't ever find it anymore. They're going to offer water. It's, it's, It's an amazing image. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down like the desolate places, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. This is just remarkable. God promises the healing of this world, nature, people, and culture. Now turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, our gospel reading. John the Baptist uh, is in jail, right? And he's like, man, I don't know. Is this for real? Do I really believe this thing that Jesus is the Christ or did I just drink the Kool-Aid? And he sends word, right? When John heard, Luke, Matthew 11, verse two, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, right? It gets, you can suddenly doubt what you've always believed when you're in prison, right? when it didn't work out. And how does Jesus answer his question, are you the one? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's going back to Isaiah 35. And he's he's saying, hey, all these towns I walked into and there were deaf people, they can hear now, right? And there were these blind people and they can see now. And there are these lame dudes that are dancing now. That's how you know. And this happened all over Palestine, right? If you've been in church or you've ever read the Bible or heard the Bible, you know all these amazing stories about Jesus healing people and doing these things that Isaiah 35 promises God will do. Can you imagine being there in that moment? These promises you had been told your whole life, the desolate reality you had experienced your whole life, and then suddenly... People in the wilderness are being fed bread miraculously. The wilderness is becoming a life-giving place. 
right? Suddenly, storms on the sea are calmed down and nature is reconciled to humans. And and Jesus is saying, look around you, what I'm doing to people and healing them and what I'm doing to nature and replacing deadly wildernesses with like bread fields. This is the promise of God. This thing that started in a fertile garden in a city where there's nature and culture and people all reconciled together and just vibrant and flourishing. God promised it would get back to that. And you're getting these little glimpses of it. See, Jesus' miracles weren't to prove that he was God. That's what God does. That's what God does. The good God who created a good world that was broken is not going to give up on that world he made. You will give up on your children before God gives up on this world. He loves it. He made it. He's going to fix it. He promised that he would do this. But that was a long time ago, wasn't it? And he didn't do that to everybody. He didn't find every single deaf person, did he? Or blind person. But we can know that he will because he did. He kept his word. And he gave us a little hors d'oeuvre 2,000 years ago. And he promises at the end of the story that what happened in a few isolated places in Palestine 2,000 years ago are going to happen everywhere. Every mountain, every valley, every disability, every despair, every dysfunction. This is what we, I mean, just look at verse, go back to Isaiah 35 and think about what he's going to do. In verse eight, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall and gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Two things about what we are longing for in our hearts and in aching for. Look at verse 9. First of all, the path to God one day will be safe. No lion shall be there, no ravenous beast. The path to God is not safe right now. I um, was recently reading Ta-Nehisi Coates, if any of you know him. He's a remarkable author and writer. In his book, We Were Eight Years in Power, he's an African-American um, who's laboring for racial justice, referring to eight years we were in power, referring to Obama's presidency. And in his book, he makes this honest admission, I would like to believe in God. I simply can't. The reasons, he says, are physical. When I was nine, some kid beat me up for amusement. And when I came home crying to my father, his answer, fight that boy or fight me. That was a godless answer. It told me there is no justice in the world except the justice we dish out with our own hands. 
And then he recounts all of these intimate experiences of godless suffering. He does this deep dive into the history of displaced and enslaved Africans in this country that only deepened his conviction there is no God. He writes, quote, nothing in the record of human history argues for divine morality and a great deal argues against it. Ideas like cosmic justice, collective hope, national redemption have no meaning for me. The truth is in everything that comes after atheism. After the amorality of the universe is no longer seen as a problem but a given, we can find the truth. It can be hard to believe in God today. And some of you, you don't. And it's not your fault. I, I was once on a journey home when evil jumped out and destroyed me and my family. I long for the day when the journey to God is safe. When there is nothing ravaging you or me or our loved ones on the way to God. One day, we will be safe from evil. Completely safe. No more hijackings on the road to God. That's one thing that I long for in this passage when I read it. All week I've been looking at this and I've just been thinking about the ravenous beast that have ravaged my loved ones on the way to God. And I long for the day when God is going to heal and it will be as easy for us as it was for some of those who got to see Jesus raise the dead and heal the blind and restore the hearing to the deaf. It will happen because it did happen. He kept his promise in those small towns of Palestine. He will keep it again. The second thing here, notice verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be on their heads. Don't you long for the day when joy is everlasting? Aren't you tired of how fleeting it is? You know those moments on the best day of your life, at the best moment, at the end of the best vacation, when you're sitting with your best friends and everything is just best, it's just right, only to wake up and it's gone. Summer ends, school comes back, breaks are over, work comes back. But there is coming a day when joy will be everlasting. I, I mean, I, I can't even hardly imagine that. Can you? Like never going to bed anxious and never waking up anxious. Never having an experience of anxiety. <laughs> Whoa. Come, Lord Jesus. This is what we're asking for. <laughs> I, I just love everlasting joy. Will be on, I love this next part. They shall obtain gladness and joy. It's like joy is overtaking them. Aren't you tired of stress overtaking you? Don't you long for the day when joy will overtake you and then never leave you? 
And then that last one, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Joy will overcome you and sorrow and sighing are going to run. They're going to run for the hills. This is what we sang in our first song. Come broken, come captive, come all you who mourn. This is what we sang. This is what we're going to sing in two weeks. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Don't we long for the day when nature sings? You've experienced moments of it on a hike in the Shenandoah National Park. You've experienced moments when the sunrise was singing to the glory of God. And you were tapped into it, and you could hear it, and you could feel it. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. This is Isaiah 35. Oh, and then the, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Everywhere. Every desolate place in your thoughts, in your memories, in your body, in nature, in culture, it will all be restored and healed. Frederick Beekner once wrote about a time his mother asked him whether he believes in life after death. Quote, I told her, if the victims and the victimizers, the wise and the foolish, the good-hearted and the heartless all end up alike in the grave and that is the end of it, then life would be a black comedy. And to me, even at its worst, life doesn't feel like a black comedy. It feels like a mystery. It feels as though in the innermost heart of it, there is holiness. And that we experience all the horrors that go on both around us and within us as horrors rather than just the way the cookie crumbles. In our own innermost hearts, we belong to holiness. And all of those horrible moments are tragic departures. And lastly, I wrote her, I believe that what happens to us after we die is that we aren't dead forever because Jesus said so. He said so. He said so in his death and resurrection. He said so in the woman who was bleeding for 12 years and she was healed. He said so in the girl who, had been, who was 12 years old and died when he raised her to life. He said so at the party when the bridegroom was under all the shame because he ran out of wine. And so Jesus made the best wine and more of it than he could ever imagine. He said so. He said so over and over and over. So what are you going to do with these promises? Go back to verse three. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God. With vengeance, with recompense, he will come and save you. What do we do with these promises? Verse three and four. Number one, behold God. Your God. He's still your God. He knows what you did this past week that shames you, and he's still your God. He knows all the vows you've broken, and he's still your God. 
He's your God because he adopted you in his family. At your baptism, he put the Holy Spirit in you and sealed you and adopted you. He doesn't, he's not going to unadopt you. He's your God. He's your God every bit as much as you are your parents' offspring. He is your God. And the first move in the desert is to behold your God. So our church has offered a number of ways that we're trying to get us to do that during this season. It can be so hard to actually behold God, to see him. We're busy, we're neglectful, we're unfaithful, we've got weird priorities. So what are you doing this season to behold your God? We've produced these worship, these devotional guides to give you a moment every day where if, if you will take some time to behold your God. We have small groups where we get together in the middle of busy weeks to read the scripture together and hopefully in the middle of busy lives, behold your God. We come together on Sundays. Hopefully in moments like this, you're beginning to turn your eyes to Jesus and behold your God. The, the second move in the desert is to recognize that God is going to act. He will step into your disability. He will step into nature's drought. He will bring vengeance and retribution. Vengeance for the wrong you've suffered. Retribution for the wrong that's been done to you. He will save. He is going to. He's going to save you. He's going to save your family. He's going to save your body. He's going to save the parts of nature we've destroyed through exploitation. He's going to save it. He's going to save culture. He's going to save our school systems. He's going to save our justice system. He's going to save business and politics and art. He's going to save this world. As far as the curse curse is found, he is going to save. Now notice verse 8. The unclean, they don't get to be a part of this. It's interesting, this word here, unclean, it comes from the sacrificial system. It's people who have refused sacrifices to clear, purify them. It's not people who've messed up. Everybody's messed up. The unclean in this passage, it's the one who have refused the means of grace on offer. It's not the perfect. It's the uncleaned. The ones who have not been cleaned. God offers a way to clean us. And if you refuse it, you don't get to be in on all of this. The other thing it says is fools won't be there. It's a tricky passage to read what it says for fools. It's, it's kind of ambiguous, but it, it is saying quite clear that fools will not be there. You know who fools are? Read the book of Proverbs. Fools are always morally bad. Fools are people who despise discipline. They reject wisdom. They mock guilt. They're quarrelsome. Fools are people who it's folly to try to teach them anything. Fools are people who are more wise in doing evil than they are in doing good. Fools are people who have not recognized that submission to God is the first principle of wisdom. They're not going to be there. But notice who will be there. (laughs) Verse 9, the end of it. The redeemed shall walk there. Not the perfect, 
the redeemed. Beginning of verse 10, the ransomed will be there. These are two words that are both drawn from family law code. Ransom, it's the kinsman redeemer. It's the person who's in a debt that they can't get out of, but somebody related to them rescues them. Redeemed, that's the same kind of word, but it focuses on the high price paid by the relative to rescue them. Isn't this Jesus? At your baptism, you're brought into the family. He's related to you. Because you're related to Jesus, he will ransom you. He will redeem you at enormous price to himself. Look at the end. We will be overtaken by joy. Sorrow and seeing will flee. Don't you want that? Accept Jesus. Trust Jesus. Behold your God. He will come to save you. Let's pray.